Welcome back to the show. Of course, this is Sets and Reps. I'm your host, Greg Adonian. This is episode number 12. Tonight's guest is Greg Stoyles, my brother-in-law. He's a former philosophy professor. He taught in New York. What we're going to do is start by briefly taking a look at the history of some philosophical topics, uh, utilitarian ethics and hedonism. And we're going to use those as a framework to answer the question, what is the best life for you to live and why? We're also going to talk about how philosophy and psychology are a little more closely related than you may think. In addition to these topics, we're going to talk about uh, higher and lower pleasures and whether or not a life of excess should be worth it to you as an end goal. We're also going to talk about what it means to suffer, how life is suffering, and the importance of friendship for the avoidance of suffering. Now, there's a lot of other topics that we're going to discuss today as well. We might get a little deep into it too with philosophy. I think that's kind of a given. So what I'm going to do is put time codes in the description and you can kind of hop around and see what topic interests you the most. But again, I want to thank you for listening. And before we get into the episode, we are going to do our circuit training segment. Today's topic for circuit training is how to get stronger shoulders. I recently did a poll on my Instagram going over a few different topics, and this is the one that you guys picked. So thank you for that. Again, you can email me at setsandrepspod at gmail.com. If you have a topic that you want to hear about in this short two, three minute segment where I kind of go over an exercise, a function, a nutritional topic, and just kind of explain a few different things about it. All right. I'm going to talk about the shoulder joint in and of itself. It's freely moving. It's got a lot of different motions. You can lift your arm up overhead. You can lift it to the side. You can bring it back behind you. The shoulder joint in itself is more mobile. It's going to be less stable. It's always important to be safe with your movements and not load them in a compromised position. The shoulder is always going to be more stable when your shoulder blades are in retraction and depression. That makes your upper back muscles work hard to keep yourself nice and stable. But some movements actually require that scapula to move freely. So the two exercises I'm going to go over today are going to help you get super strong shoulders so that you can hold the world up above your head, literally. So we're going to start with the standing overhead barbell shoulder press. You're going to need a barbell and a squat rack, something to lift that bar up off of. You want to make sure your hands are shoulder width apart. So you're going to also line your fingers up, I'd say the middle finger, with the landmark on the bar like a ring. And you're going to brace your core tightly, bring your ribs down. And as you push your arms up overhead, you can't really break this trunk stabilization. That's the most important part. If you start to excessively curve your back as you lift that weight up over your head, you're going to put a lot of pressure there. You need to maintain that tightness through your core. Feel your core and your abs working the entire time. Then as you lower the bar down back to where you started, you're going to pull your shoulder blades together and drop them down again. Make sure you use the bar first as you practice your technique and you get better. Second exercise we're going to go over is the face pull. This is a functional pulling movement. I feel that everyone should do this movement. It's a staple. It's going to get you a strong back and strong rear shoulders. You start with your hands forward. You're going to use a cable machine with a rope attachment. You're going to start by gripping that rope attachment. Arms are straight out in front of you. And thumb side of your hand is up, if you can picture that. When you pull the bar to your chest, you're squeezing your shoulder blades together. You're going to try to keep those shoulders from shrugging up to your ears, but your fists are going to rotate and you're going to almost punch yourself in the face with your knuckles, literally face pull. And your elbows are going to resemble chicken wings in the end position. Try to keep them shrugging and then you're going to allow your hands to return to the starting position. Thanks for listening to Circuit Training. Now let's get into the episode. How are you feeling today? 
I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to have you as well. We've had plenty of conversations in the past. Um, I've asked you about things and I enjoy the time that we have. And I thought, what, what, what a perfect person to have on the podcast. Someone that I can just, you know, genuinely sit down and have a good conversation with, um, thinking some good thoughts. I, I, I thought it would be a nice idea if you kind of gave the audience just, you know, a few background facts on yourself. Would that be okay? All right. Sure. That's fine. Yeah. Um, well, I was, I was raised religious growing up and that sent me on a particular path um, that I've since strayed from a little bit, but I'm, I'm happy that I've had the experiences that I've had. Um, I met Greg's oldest sister, Lucy, at a Bible college in Western New York and she and I married and then I went off to seminary. I became an ordained priest with the communion of evangelical Episcopal priests. Um, and around that time, I had a bachelor's degree in philosophy. That was what my undergrad was in. Um, I started teaching philosophy at a local community college in New York. And in 2010, I went to Ireland to undertake my PhD, uh, completed all the coursework for the PhD, never finished writing the dissertation, but I completed the coursework for it. I mm. uh, came home uh, and I've taught at a number of various schools here. And since, uh, since some of that teaching work, I've also done hospital chaplaincy and I've sat on a couple of ethics committees. Um, I was a volunteer uh, consultant at the VA hospital in Canandaigua on their ethics committee. And uh, I was a hospital chaplain at St. Joseph's Hospital uh, in Syracuse, New York. And part of that work included sitting on their ethics committee um, and so that's, that's my background. You mentioned you, you know, your, your, your specialty is philosophy, the, the, the time that you've put in, um, your, your passion, I assume, um, these are subjects that I feel like I've been a little bit ignorant about. And growing up, I thought of philosophy as like something that you would group with psychology, uh, and I know that those two are both topics that involve thinking and processing brain. Um, let me know if you agree with this, but I feel like psychology, I've only taken a college level psychology course, just one. I think it was intro to psychology. I feel like everything in psychology is laid out and, and there for you and, and kind of described right like you know different things going wrong with the brain different personalities mm -hmm. and then philosophy is more questioning it's more concepts that you have to think about and and chew on for a while um would you would you agree well, that i i think um I, you said a couple of really important words in your description of psychology you said describing brain and um I think that that's what psychology is doing. I think philosophy, I would use, instead of the verb describe, I would say analyze. And instead of brain, I would say mind. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if you look at the, the history of the two disciplines, you're right. Uh, in America, uh, they're intertwined. Uh, they were both, both the philosophy and psychology departments at Harvard were founded by the same person, William James. Wow. And that's really how both of those disciplines came to America. 
uh, was through James's interest in what was happening in Austria and Germany with psychology at the time. And um, if you look at what's happening in Germany, uh, even before Freud, uh, who's going to be in Austria, you have uh, a man by the name of Franz Brentano. And Brentano distinguishes between what he calls descriptive psychology and analytic psychology. And descriptive psychology is the study of the brain. And that's what we mean when we say psychology. And analytic psychology is the study of the mind. And that's what we mean when we talk about phenomenology, which is a kind of philosophy. So the distinction is the distinction between physical organ in your skull called your brain and whatever the concept of your mind. Philosophers study the mind, psychologists study the brain. But you're right to say that they're linked. They are historically and they still are uh, in terms of what they research. So it's a good connection. That seems like such a great way to put it. Um, and it, and it certainly helps my understanding a lot more. You mentioned phenomenology is a, is like a, I don't remember what word specifically used, but it's like a type of philosophy. So, so does that mean that there's multiple types or multiple theories? So in within philosophy, there would be multiple disciplines, right? So metaphysics is the study of the nature of reality and Epistemology is the study of knowledge, and ethics is the study of uh, a good life and what makes a right act right and a wrong act wrong. And phenomenology is the study of the self and the mental phenomena that the self perceives. Um, so it's a study of the mind. It's philosophy of the mind. That's what phenomenology is. So there are different types of phenomenologists who have different opinions, um, and they argue about different things. Um, mostly they like to argue about how, how knowledge gets to us. Um, how do I know what I know about myself and about the world outside of me and these things that I seem to be experiencing? Are my five senses reliable? Or my senses in general, not my five senses, but are my senses reliable? Um, so that's the kind of conversations they have. Is there one of these particular theories that you would say that you spent more time delving into um, as a professor? What did you mainly, uh, which one did you mainly uh, stick with? So that's an, an interesting question. As, as a student and as a researcher, um, my interest started with a philosopher uh, named Soven Kierkegaard. Mm. And I explored the relationship between faith and reason um, which is a, a part of philosophy called fideism. You hear about fide or fidelity, how, how true is a recording. You talk about the fidelity of a recording. Mm -hmm. Fide is the Latin word for faith. And um, so Kierkegaard explored the relationship between faith and reason, uh, or to say it this way, between religion and science. When religion and science seem to be at odds, why is that? Uh, is, can faith ever be reasonable? Will faith always violate reason? That's where I say I had a religious upbringing and philosophy was therapeutic for me. I was kind of wrestling with my own faith and rather than do it in theological terms, Kierkegaard let me do it in secular terms, which at the time uh, felt safer to me because it didn't feel like I had to, uh, you know, tip my hat to any particular theological tradition, but I could just be an honest inquirer. Um, so my, my interest started with Kierkegaard, and then I got into utilitarian ethics, 
um, I'd spent a number of years teaching ethics. And then when I uh, went to Ireland to undertake the PhD, I had to put together a PhD proposal. So to answer your question, um, three areas of interest, Kierkegaard's fideism, utilitarian ethics, and American pragmatism. So the, the word ethics in and of itself is, you know, if something's ethical, it's, it's right, right? Morally good. Yeah, um, I mean... It, not wrong. Yeah. Uh, th this idea of a standard or some sort of credibility, if you have ethos, you have credibility. Um, and you have credibility because you are able to meet some standard standard for goodness or justice or some standard, right? So it's a Greek word, yeah. Do you feel that people can use uh, people can use ethics in philosophy to to frame their lives, living uh, how they how living by the definition of the standard or uh, moral righteousness? Like, do you feel like people can use ethics as a framework for that? So for their I, own lives? That's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think to answer it, I would say the, the primary ethical question, the first question we have to ask if we're going to undertake ethics is, what is the best life for me to live and why? And however I answer that question, it's going to give me that framework. It's going to give me that paradigm or that worldview. And that will include uh, a definition of goodness, right? So like if I were to ask the question, what is the best life to live and why? Um, you know, I, I might ask a philosopher by the name of Ayn Rand. Uh, she was an American who uh, died maybe 50 years ago now, maybe in the 80s, I think, early 80s she died. And mm -hmm. she had a, a, a theory associated with her called ethical egoism. And she would say, the best life for me to live is a life of rational self-interest, right? Like this altruism stuff is a bunch of nonsense. Don't ask me to give my money away. If you want to be charitable, if you want to be philanthropic, that's your business. You go ahead and do it. But I'm going to live a life of rational self-interest and I won't, I won't be upset if you select to do the same. Well, then I ask somebody else, like maybe I go to church and I ask, uh, you know, a, a pastor or a priest, what's the best life for me to live? And their answer is different. And they say, well, you need to live a redeemed life, right? You're, you're broken. You're sin sick. Original sin has crept into your soul. And so you need to be redeemed. And so the best life for you to live is a life pursuant of redemption. And that might mean being charitable. And so how one person answers might be different than how another person answers. And that difference is because they've got different conceptions of what the best life is and what a good life is. And so because they've got different ideas about that, they live different lives, right? Yeah, that so makes a lot we, of sense. We're all pursuing the good, right? Like yeah. somebody who steals, we say, we say that that person steals and what they did was wrong. Well, it doesn't seem that way to them, right? Like maybe they're hungry and maybe they don't want to steal, but not starving to death feels worse. <laughs> so we're all, we're all trying to do our best. We're all trying to do what we think is good. If, if one person is doing something different than someone else, 
It's because they have a different idea of what goodness is. And so ethics wants to have a conversation. What is the best life for me to live and why? And when I can answer that question, then I can start to, to come up with, you know, the business of establishing what makes the right act right and the wrong act wrong. So to answer your question about what I subscribe to personally, um, I feel very persuaded by a, an ethical theory called hedonism. And hedone is a Greek word, it means pleasure. And here's the big idea. Everything everywhere tries to avoid suffering, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're male or female or you know, old or young. It doesn't matter if you're a human or a dog. It doesn't matter if you're an earthworm. If you poke an earthworm with a stick, it's going to squirm and try to get away. So when, when we're trying to answer the question, what's the best life for me to live? I like hedonism because it says everybody everywhere tries to avoid suffering. It's the only natural good, right? So for the priest who says you have to lead a redeemed life so you go to church, like that might work for some people, but it's not going to work for the earthworm. It's not going to work for the dogs. It's not going to work for somebody living in Japan, right? Yeah. But everybody everywhere tries to avoid suffering. And so that's a really, really good start because it applies to everything. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I, like, I like hedonism, a life that tries to, I mean, the word means pleasure, but I like, I like to spin it. Instead of pursuing pleasure, uh, I pursue the avoidance of suffering. I don't want to suffer. I want to be comfortable. I want to be content. You know? Yeah. So there's, so there's two sides of that almost. Um, there's the the suffering, which is what you mentioned, sounds like it's just negative energy and, um, you know, the other side is, is pleasure. Well, when you say pleasure is something that should be seeked in order to, you know, to avoid suffering, are there levels to this pleasure? Like, should people be aiming for a certain level of, of, of pleasure or is it just to avoid suffering at all costs. Yeah. So historically, there are two answers to that question. The, the first answer comes from a group of Greek philosophers who are called Cyrenaics. And the Cyrenaics said that um, the best pleasures to pursue are immediate pleasures that are physical pleasures. And the reason why that is, is because you don't know when, when you might die, right? Like you can go to college and you can earn your degrees and you can spend all this time reading books, but if you'd rather be playing a video game or drinking a beer or something, like what's gonna happen if you die tomorrow? Like you didn't make the most out of your time because you were so busy investing in pleasures that you never got the chance to realize. And so the Cyrenaic said, um, live for today. Whatever pleasure today can bring, accept that pleasure. Um, then they said, physical pleasures, food, sex, and sleep. That's what you want, right? Whoever dies with the most toys wins, mm. right? <laughs> if you, you procreate with as many, you know, that's what you, evolution wants you to spread your seed as much as you can. Get right. as much as you can get. You get as much physical gratification if you like 
pizza, then eat two sheet pizzas a day. Whatever physical, whatever gives you physical pleasure, it's to be preferred to mental pleasures. So those are the Cyrenaics. The other group of hedonists in ancient Greece that came up, you know, maybe 300, 300 years after, um, they follow the most famous hedonist, who's a man by the name of Epicurus. And Epicurus uh, pretty much says the opposite of those things. Mm. Um, he says, defer gratification. Because while it's true that you might die tomorrow and you can't foresee that, it's not reasonable for you to live your life as though you're going to die tomorrow. And if you don't die tomorrow, you're going to wish that you would have put in the time <laughs> and, and done the schoolwork and done the whatever else, because you'll be more comfortable in the long run if you do. And then Epicurus says, while it's true that we are animals and we like physical pleasure, um, in the long run, we're going to get more pleasure from mental experiences like learning how to appreciate fine wine or learning a foreign language or an instrument or something like that, you know? I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, also preparing for this podcast, but in general, just, yeah, that idea of, you know, the, the mental pleasures. And I, and I like, I like how Epicurus kind of took, seems like he took a concept and, and provided something more out of it. Uh, I think so. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he's sometimes called a negative hedonist. So if the positive concept is pursue pleasure, Epicurus is a negative hedonist because he says, don't pursue pleasure, pursue the avoidance of pain. Because if you pursue pleasure, your life's going to be like a roller coaster, right? You're going to have some really high highs, but you're also going to have some really low lows as you're either coming off of those highs or pursuing new highs. But if Epicurus says, if instead of pursuing pleasure, you pursue the avoidance of pain, what you're going to do instead is to try to keep those lows as shallow as possible. And the outcome might mean you don't have very high highs, but in the long run, you're going to have contentment. And so when Epicurus died, he famously accepted lemon in his water. Because up to that point, he would never take lemon in his water because he wasn't pursuing pleasure. He was pursuing the avoidance of pain. And what would happen if he got a sour lemon and it disappointed him? He would suffer. And he didn't want to suffer, so to avoid it, he just refused it. But when he was dying, he had really severe stomach pains. So his, his friends said, here, we're going to put lemon in your water. And he didn't say no. And it shocked everybody. <laughs> he took that's, the lemon in his water. You know? So that's the difference between Epicurus and the Cyrenaics. Yeah. He's pursuing the avoidance of pain. He's a negative hedonist. That's really cool. That's an interesting concept for sure. Um, yeah. So... If someone is wanting to avoid that instant gratification, and I just ta I talked about this on another episode of my podcast recently, um, the idea of instant gratification versus the long game or, mm. or waiting for mm -hmm. success to happen, not really waiting, but like putting in the steps every single day, sets and reps, and reps you know what I mean? Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, what would be your advice to someone using this concept as a framework, these philosophical theories, someone who's trying to avoid that instant gratification, but they're having, they're, they're having a hard time because of just the physical, just the physical pleasure and, and, and they know the long term is there, but it just feels long. 
Right, right, right. So my, in thinking about your question, my mind goes to a difference between the Cyrenaics and Epicurus. And the difference is this. I think about Hugh Hefner, the guy who started Playboy magazine mm. and, you know, was married and divorced and who knows how many different women he'd bedded in his lifetime. And the Cyrenaics would look at somebody like Hugh Hefner and say, boy, job well done. Um, you know, when, when I lived in New York City, we would sometimes take the train from Queens into Manhattan. And I don't know if it was 40 seconds. I don't remember the midtown Manhattan somewhere we'd get off. And somebody, I don't know if the city had like commissioned a graffiti artist to do it or if some vandal did it, but somebody had graffitied on the subway wall coming out of the train station, going into Manhattan in the Times Square, the phrase too much is not enough. And that is sort of like the, perfect description of Hugh Hefner, of the Cyrenaics. Like if you're going to pursue pleasure, like if you're going to eat bonbons, eat the whole bag. Like too much is not enough, right? But Epicurus, it, in his refusal of pleasure, he's different. And I think about a, a Catholic philosopher by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He said, um, if a man can learn to love one wife, he will have a lifetime of honeymoons. If a man can learn to love one wife, he'll have a lifetime of honeymoons. Happy wife, and happy so, life. So I think about like, what if Hefner had learned that lesson? Like did Hugh Hefner, did he have a happy life? Because he never learned how to love one wife, right? He just yeah. went through woman after woman after woman. But it's also interesting that it doesn't quite come natural, right? Like you have to learn how to do it. You have to learn how to love women. Like it takes some effort. And so I, I think that that's an important distinction. Like to your question about what do you say to somebody who doesn't want to put in the time, right. like it's going to take effort. It's going to be work. But the reward in the long run might be contentment. But I don't know that there's necessarily a right answer either. Like to what, to what degree are we willing to shake our finger if you have to? Like, was, mm. are we willing to say that it was wrong to, to live a life of excess? Or, do you think that, Greg? Do you think that it's wrong to live a life of excess? Would you be critical of somebody who's excessive either in sex, like Hefner, or somebody who's a glutton with food, or somebody who's excessive with money, like they just want to make more and more money? Or can that be a good life? So it's interesting. I don't believe that a life of excess is the end goal. I don't. I don't believe that that's desired for myself. Um, but after working hard, after putting in the effort uh, to avoid that gratification, because you're saying it's work, after putting that in, I would say, why not? But But everything in moderation has always been my outlook. And I feel like you shouldn't be doing whatever it is you're focusing on, whatever that long game is, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be for the end goal of living in excess. Living in excess should be a secondary thing. I hmm. feel Does that makes sense. So it does. So if, if you have, you know, good things come to those who wait, like if you have other pursuits, but then in, in achieving those goals, you know, money comes to you or success and what other metrics do you want to use? Like, good. But it's almost like, was it, is it Matthew chapter five where Jesus says something like, 
seek you first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added unto you. Like, don't pursue other things. Don't just pursue uh, the pleasures, but pursue something higher than that, loftier than that, and the pleasures will come. Um, I like that. Yeah, Epicure, Epicurus might think something like that too. Yeah, I think so. So Epicurus, after the Cyrenaics, Epicurus kind of, like like we said, he was the negative um, philosopher, right? Negative or, hedonist. hedonist. He, he founded, yeah, he founded a school called the Garden, and there are actually hundreds of these communities. I mean, almost cult-like. Um, you know, he's he's called the Prince of Atheism, so it's it's hard to think of him as a religious cult leader when he's got the moniker of Prince of Atheism. But um, he was like this cult of personality type of thing where, you know, people sort of vowed or disavowed material wealth and they vowed friendship. Um, and yeah, the, the pursuit of mental pleasure and, and work. Um, if you work and the work that you do is something that, that is true to who you are, true to your personality, something that you enjoy and if what you do is helping other people then that work will give you pleasure and so epicurus was all about work and friendship and these communities these schools which were called the garden um yeah they were like these little little monasteries where friends that were atheists worked together planting tomatoes and making cheese out of goat's milk you know it's <laughs> sounds like not, not a bad life not a bad life <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I had another question. I'm curious. Uh, does, does hedonism talk about at all uh, what, what should be done if you can't ab avoid suffering? If, if you fall into a situation that provides suffering and you, you can't get, you want to work your way out of it. Do they provide, do they provide any, does that make you think of anything? Um, I think it's, 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 it's kind of a broad of, question. It, it does. It depends a little bit on the situation, I guess. Um, I, say I like, think that, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You first. I'm sorry. I think Epicurus would, would really emphasize the value of friendship. Mm. Um, it's, it's what we see on his deathbed scene. Um, the, the sign in front of his house, which was where the first school called the garden, it's literally the, the backyard of his house. Uh, the sign said, stranger, you will do well to tarry here, for here our highest pursuit is pleasure. But that first word in that sign was the word stranger. And so for Epicurus, um, as opposed to other schools in the ancient Greek world, like Aristotle's Lyceum or Plato's Republic, uh, Epicurus invited people in who were not white males, right? If you were gonna be a student in Plato's Republic, you had to be a Greek male. If you were going to be a student in Aristotle's I seem to be a Greek male, he allowed exception for women who were exceptionally intelligent. But for the most part, you had to be a Greek male. When Aristotle dies in his will, he sets his slaves free. But Epicurus doesn't just set slaves free, he says, come be my friend. You're not a slave. You come be, live with me, and let's be friends. Because the truth is, Epicurus says, the truth is this. 
I'm nothing other than a walking bundle of bigotries. And if I live my life alongside somebody who's different from me, they're going to erode away those bigotries. I'm going to start to see the world differently than how I see it. And the truth is, all of those bigotries, whether I realize it or not, they're compromising my happiness. They're compromising my pleasure. So it's in my interest to develop friendships with people who aren't just white males, but with people who are people of color and who are gay and, and you know, trans or women or whatever. Like it's in my interest to develop these relationships um, because they, they are like sandpaper on my rough edges. And what the result of that is, is a life uh, without a lot of pain and suffering so that when I'm in a situation where pain is unavoidable, like Epicurus's death, you're surrounded by true friends, not superficial plastic friends, not people who you know say nice things but don't really know you. And you, you never really got the time to know either because you got hung up on superficialities like skin tone and things like that, right? Because when, when you press past those things, you get to the, the, the real substance of a person that's where intimacy is really developed. And so Epicurus, you know, to answer your question, how do you overcome suffering? Well, you have to have a good support system and good coping mechanisms. And that means being very intentional about the friendships you develop. That's a really good piece of advice. And uh, I keep my circle pretty small, all things considered. I have a few friends from high school that I stay in contact with and, and just, you know, I like, I like that versus knowing a lot of different people and, and, and meeting a lot of different people. I think that too much, too much I'm the same way. can get into your life that way. But yeah. Like now I'm an, I'm an only child and you've been to my folks house here in New York. You, they've got no neighbors like, and the neighbors they had, like they were like 80 or something or 90 and they were really stupid, like old. So growing up, like I had nobody to socialize with. And so I feel like it's just natural for me to have a really small circle of friends because I've never had anything more than like a dog. So <laughs> yeah, man, you still got dogs. You got the two cutest pugs around. I got two dogs. <laughs> Heck yeah. Things are uh, looking up. <laughs> things are looking up avoiding that suffering you just gotta look honestly another piece of advice that i feel like um epicurus definitely missed is the fact that you could just look at a dog and the dog would just be super cute and oh, yeah, avo yeah. you'll avoid suffering right there heck yeah it's pretty good so did anyone take what epicurus sought out and what he conceptualized did anyone take that and sort of modernize it as time passed so um yes okay this is going to lead into a discussion about a uh, english philosopher a british philosopher named jeremy bentham um yeah go ahead what, he, what would you like to say just about Jer you know jeremy bentham i did a, a little bit of research on him and just from what i've seen he's he seems like a kind of cool guy. He like sort of a big deal. Sort of a big deal. He, you know, he like one thing in particular I saw. I want you to go into it for sure. But he was an early defender of freedom of expression, and like 
other concepts that people probably at the time considered to be like, don't want to do that. Like, you know what I mean? So it, it, he seemed almost ahead of his time. Oh, he absolutely was. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let, let's, let's talk about Jeremy Bentham and then we'll make the connection to Epicurus um, as yeah. we go. But let me just, yeah. I'll give you just a quick, because of what you just said there. Um, so he was a jurist, um, which is something that we don't really have the equivalent of in America, J-U-R-I-S-T, like an attorney, but works just for uh, people in parliament, almost like, I guess the American equivalent might be like a think tank, something like that. Oh. But his, his role basically is to help uh, parliamentarians develop legislation. And so uh, he's, he trains in the law, right? He's like an attorney. Um, he might even be an attorney, as, as a matter of fact, a solicitor, as they would have called them in England. Um, but his work, his day-to-day -day job, is to try to figure out what are the best principles whereby to govern. And so he's going to go back to Epicurus in answer to that question and make some cool application. Uh, but before we look at that, um, you can actually go to University College London today. Like we could hop on a plane, maybe if, you know, COVID might put a little hitch in that, but we could hop on a plane and fly over to England and go to University College London and we would see Jeremy Bentham's taxidermied head on display. It's still what? there for us to look at. Yeah, you can look it up on Google. <laughs> They've got like marbles for his eyeballs, but um, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I don't know how. If you went I, down never, there now, they'd probably put a mask on him. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's crazy. They're making a political statement, right? <laughs> um, yes. So he's he is significant in that he's going to make a connection to Epicurus, huh. and he's significant because he's good friends with a man by the name of James Mill. And James Mill is significant because he's the father of a boy named John, John Stewart, John Stewart Mill. And so when we talk about Jeremy Bentham, we always talk about John Stewart Mill as well. And of the two, uh, John Mill was probably the more significant in that he was actually a parliamentarian. He actually sat on parliament. And you talk about Jeremy Bentham's progressive policies. Um, John Mill took that to the nth degree. Uh, he worked with William Wilberforce for the abolition of slavery in England. Uh, he famously slammed his fist down on the podium in parliament saying women should have the right to vote. He's doing this in the 1800s in England, oh, long wow. before we're having this conversation in America. And uh, John Mill, who wrote a great treatise called On Liberty, uh, alludes to even animal rights. And uh, it, it's interesting. He's like, we think that a person's moral status, we act like a person's moral status, like a person should have value in our society based on what group they're a part of. Like if you're white, you're worth more than you're black. He goes, that's nonsense. So John Mills says, I'm an abolitionist. Because we act like if you've got, if you're a male, you're worth more, your opinion should be worth more than your, if you're a female. That's ridiculous. I'm a woman suffragist, right? That's what John Mills says. He goes, yeah, it's like if you belong to the species Homo sapiens, you have more right to be on this planet than if you belong to another species. He goes, that's nonsense too. Moral status doesn't go the way of group membership. 
moral status goes the way of a being's capacity to suffer. And that's what brings us back to Epicurus. Oh, uh, yes. It's all about suffering. So if a being does not belong to the species Homo sapiens, but that being can still suffer, it has innate, inherent moral status. If a being isn't a white male, <laughs> but is female, that being should still be allowed to vote. That's what John Mill says. If they're black, they shouldn't be slaves. So moral status doesn't go the way of group membership, but it goes the way of, remember when I said, everybody everywhere avoids suffering. Mm -hmm. The only natural, that word natural is so important. The only natural good is the avoidance of pain because it applies to everybody everywhere. And so if you're gonna be a jurist, if you're gonna to try to figure out principles whereby you should you know, rule a society, you want to come up with principles that apply to everybody, not just white males, but to blacks too, and to females. And maybe we can even admit that pigs and cows have some moral interests as well, that they have some innate moral status and that we shouldn't just use them as though they can't suffer when we know in fact they can. I've spoken to a lot of people, I mean, especially with my background in fitness, there's people that are switching diets, for nutritional reasons. Um, but I've actually heard from a few people that they became vegans, they became vegetarians because of a guilt that they feel like, yeah, like, you know, behind eating animals. And I was, it's interesting because I myself, I see the nutritional value in, in meat. Um, sure. you know, the protein, the lean, the lean protein, the fat, and the certain nutrients that we can get. There's certain meats that I don't eat. There's some that I would prefer to eat over others. Um, I haven't really ever made a connection to this, this guilt that, that people have. And I was wondering, you know, I was wondering if you could explain to me the guilt that, that, that people have behind, I mean, behind switching I, <laughs> over to, yeah. I'd be delighted, but I'm not sure you actually want me to. I mean, it's, do you want me to talk you into this, into feeling guilty? <laughs> well, uh, talk, you, yeah, surprise me. All right. I'll do my best. Uh, um, <clears throat> what's your thought? Go ahead. It's funny. I mean, I know I know a few people that are that that are like vegan in particular, and I honestly I don't have a good reason for for thoughts and biases that I've had about about it. So like, just because I eat one way doesn't doesn't matter how other people eat. So I, I, sure. I'm being indifferent, and I want to learn. So all right, right on. Um, well, first of all, let me let me begin by saying I am the world's biggest hypocrite. Meat is delicious. Um, we are omnivores. You know that's that's how we we've evolved over three hundred thousand years of human evolution. Um, but we have not evolved to eat meat every day, right? Like think think about human evolution and think about um, <clears throat> think about how how recently in human history we've had access to refrigeration. Um, maybe the tribe would, would kill a deer and everybody in the tribe would eat that deer for two or three days 
but then the deer would be gone and you wouldn't have be able to refrigerate it. And what are you going to do when you don't hit another deer for another month? I mean, you're, you're eating a lot of fruits and berries. Most of your diet in a hunter gatherer society is not eating meat. Um, and our, our teeth and our intestinal tracts attest to that, right? Like we don't, we don't have a carnivore's intestinal tract. We've got really long and take out my small intestines. It like stretches around the globe like 20,000 times or some weird crap. I don't know. Like it's way too long. Like a carnivore's intestinal tract is like a foot long because you don't want meat rotting in your stomach. You're supposed to eat and then poop if you're eating meat. But if you're eating grains, right? If you're an herbivore, you need longer intestines to break that stuff down, to break down the husk of the grass and the wheat and the whatever else you're eating. Mm. So your intestinal tracts are longer. And humans, we say we're omnivores, but the truth is it's like a spectrum. And on the left side, you've got carnivores. And on the right side, you've got herbivores. And humans are way to the right. Like we're omnivores, but we're much closer to herbivores than we are carnivores in terms of how our bodies are put together. Yeah, I so, can say that. I definitely eat more foods that aren't meat than I than I do that are meat. I mean, there, there's meat. a carnivore diet, like an actual diet. The American diet is the carnivore <laughs> diet. I mean, when was the last time you went a day without eating meat? Like most meals, I have meat. Actually, I feel, I usually I, meat. yeah, I feel like I feel like the American diet is a little bit more processed. Yeah, but what were you saying? I yeah. mean, if you want to count McDonald's as meat, I suppose. Is <laughs> true. <laughs> true, true, true. I mean, yeah. So in, in any event, um, so if we start with the question, getting back to uh, the guilt that I think all hedonists feel when yeah. it comes to eating meat, yeah. um, if it, it, the question is this. If I'm made in God's image, and if my moral status comes, if my value comes from the fact that I'm made in God's image, then anything that's not been made in God's image doesn't have any moral status and I can do what I want with it. But if that isn't true, if I'm not made in God's image, then I have to ask the question, what gives my life value? And what else shares that common feature with me? Yeah. And the, the answer is what gives my life value is my capacity to suffer. The more I can suffer, the greater my value is. And so anything that has a capacity to suffer has a measure of value. So let me give you, let me give you a, for instance, <clears throat> imagine for example, uh, a human that's born, member of the species Homo sapiens, but it's just a brainstem, right? It didn't develop right in utero. It doesn't have the, the other three lobes of the brain. It only has that first brainstem, which controls non-voluntary organ function. So the lungs work and the heart works, but they're never going to be able to feed themselves or be aware of themselves or recognize themselves in the mirror or wipe themselves. I mean, they're just a brainstem, but they belong to the species Homo sapiens. Exhibit A. Exhibit B, uh, a grieving elephant, an elephant who's lost their young baby elephant, or a seeing eye dog who's helping another person who was blind. Mm. Or, you know, some, some animal that doesn't belong to our species, but very clearly can suffer. Which one of these two animals, exhibit A, the homo sapiens with just a brainstem, or exhibit B, the seeing eye dog, has greater moral status? Well, if you believe we're made in the image of God, 
you're going to say exhibit A. But the hedonist says exhibit B. And so the relevance of that for when it comes to food is, what's my, where's my food being sourced from and how much suffering is being produced for the sake of me having a meal? Mm-hmm. And can I feed myself and be nutritious without having to cause suffering? And if I can, why wouldn't I? You know? Yes, I do know. That is very significant. Thank you very much. That, that helps a, my perspective because it's, it's almost there's like... There's a great book. There's a great book I'd recommend called Animal Liberation. It was published in the 1970s by Peter Singer. Um, I couldn't recommend the book highly enough to you, but basically the idea is um, the horrors of factory farming as they've happened in the Western world and particularly America because those practices have been outlawed in Europe and they were never practiced in Oceania, never practiced in Australia which is where uh, Peter Singer was from, or in New Zealand. Um, But the horrors of factory farming are on par with the Holocaust, or worse. I mean, the amount of suffering, if we were to actually try to measure suffering, the amount of suffering on this planet, what we do to to, keep those McDonald's burgers churning, it's pretty disgusting. (laughs) Yeah, because using everything that we've talked about in this podcast as a framework, these beings are, they're, they are able to experience suffering. So they're being put under a lot of it. And it's, you're right, it is disgusting. You know, that's a great question that I think we have to ask. Are these beings experiencing pain? Like if, Talk about vivisection, for example. I live close to Rochester, New York, and I'm friends with a lab tech. Um, you know, he's got some graduate degree and he works in the lab at University of Rochester. And of course, it's illegal. And of course, you know, it's not the sort of thing that you'd ever see publicized. But he says that they violate all sorts of laws and conditions on how to treat animals that they experiment on, including monkeys. Now think about the practice of vivisection, right? Like if you were to take a monkey, and they do this, take a monkey and while it's still alive, pin it down and cut it open and get what scientific data you can from flaying the thing alive, then it bleeds to death, but you're not giving it any pain relievers. Like, is that animal, does that animal have any interest? Or can we just do whatever we want to monkeys like that? And it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, can, can we just do whatever we want to chickens or do whatever we want to cows and they're just a cow or so it doesn't matter? Or, or does it matter that they can feel pain? R- Rene Descartes was a philosopher who lived in the 1600s and he thought that they were just automatons, like robots, that we could literally do whatever we wanted because they couldn't feel pain. They had like twitch responses. Like if you were to sit and the doctor hits you on the knee and you have like a reflex, like animals have that. But they don't have souls, Descartes said. So because they don't have souls, they can't really feel pain. And he wrote a whole article about this in France in the 1600s. Like, do we think that? Do we think Descartes is right about that? That animals are just automatons, just robots? Or when you look at that monkey who's being vivisected, who's being filleted, do you say, you know what? There's something wrong about this. Maybe that thing isn't a human. Maybe he doesn't belong to my species. But the thing has got some innate, inherent rights. 
and I can't just do whatever I want to. I mean, it's a decision that people have to make for themselves. And in philosophy, in the history of philosophy, you've got, you've got answers on both sides. So, well, Immanuel Kant was another philosopher who thought that animals, you could do what you want with them because God gave us dominion over the earth. And so because God gave humankind dominion, we were made in the Imago Dei. We were made in the image of God. They weren't. And so Immanuel Kant says, you can do whatever you want with them. Uh, Thomas Aquinas says, just don't hurt them in front of children because children might get the wrong idea and then children might go and hurt each other. So whoa, whoa. philosophers have different ideas about what they think about animals, but um, yeah. hedonists are always on the side of don't hurt animals. <laughs> well, that's as I continue to live my life, that's something that I feel I need to chew on a little bit more, whether or not you know it, no pun intended yeah no pun intended for real i mean <laughs> nailed it right there um i i feel i feel that that's a good way to live i mean for us for our species life life is suffering and it's it's not hard but it's you know brings back to what you said earlier suffering brings more value for us not for not for animals so that you know i i don't know i have to chew on that a little bit more i, I <laughs> we're not going to solve these issues today obviously um but i was going to ask you one last question just okay. what you know to to bring it all together and end on more of a, a lighter note since we aren't going to solve all these issues my my last question to you was which philosopher you are the professor of philosophy which one would you feel like you would want to sit down to have dinner with the most and why? Um, well, that's another interesting question because that's not necessarily asking who I think is the most right or who do I think is the most correct. True. It's, um, not. it's who do I think I would have the best, the most delightful evening with. Yeah. Uh, like you, who would you have the best conversation with over the best food? Huh. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be Epicurus. You just sit there and drink water. <laughs> it wouldn't even take lemon in it. Um, oh, my gosh. I mean, Kierkegaard would suffer. be a wet blanket. He'd, he'd be awful. William James dealt with depression. You know, <sighs> geez, I don't know, man. Like, the answer is probably people that I know that yeah. I'm just friends with yeah. that I would like to have an evening with because they're my friends. Friends are important. If, we discussed this. If the question is, who do I think, you know, who could I learn the most from? Maybe mm. somebody like Richard Rorty. Um, yeah. He's, yeah. I mean, we didn't talk about him at all, but uh, he's somebody that I look up to a lot and does a good job of articulating what I would consider my own worldview. Well, very good. Thank you. Um, he, died, he died, I think, in 2007. So he's relatively oh, recent, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming to my show to, to stop in with me and, and learn me a little bit. We, we, we talked about, we talked a lot about ethics. We talked a lot about, you know, right and wrong life and, and, and suffering and, and, 
the value that it may have. And I just really appreciate the conversation. And I know that, you know, I'd like to have you on here again sometime. All right, Greg. Thank you so much. I'll talk, I'll talk to you soon. All right.